Well, good morning, everyone. We'll go ahead and get started this morning. We'll get started with uh, with Dustin. Attendance sheets coming around, please. Uh, if you're a guest, you can you can put yourself as a guest on the back page. That's more than fine. If you normally attend and you plan to keep attending, mark your spot down for, for Jen. How's everyone doing this morning? Good? Okay. So we have two verses on the board this morning. We're, we're in Romans 11. We have some newcomers today, so I am really sorry. It's going to be hard to unless you are super well trained, uh, it's gonna be hard to, to help you with a context that we've been in and been going through. Big picture is Romans 9, 10, and 11 shows that uh, Israel had problems with receiving the gospel. And Paul is dealing with why so many Israelites do not, won't, wouldn't believe in Jesus during that time. The, the letter to the Romans was written in AD 56, so 20 years after Jesus died. And Paul had preached the gospel in a number of areas in uh, modern-day Turkey and the Galatian region there. And was soon going to go up to, had gone up through Macedonia, which is Greece today, as we know it. So why did so many Jews not believe in general? Why was there such a small remnant of believers? And then it in the context also it's woven in that uh, how the Gentiles fit into this big picture that Gentiles are being saved that the theological truth is about how Gentiles and Jews both get saved is the same it's a monergistic work of God meaning that it its origins where it originates is from God and specifically God's grace grace is something that no one deserves Paul has elaborated in Romans, especially in 1 through 3, that all men are very sinful and no one deserves God in any way. And that if somebody is saved, it's totally of grace. That God chose of his own will, God is free and man is not. God chose of his own free will to show grace to humanity. And we'll get into some of that today. Some of what that looks like. So... I apologize if you hear some things new today. It would have, it helps if you hear hear a lot of the words that I've been using. Different teachers kind of teach through it in different ways, using different words and stuff like that. But the ideas are the same. So hopefully that overview helps and maybe helps everybody else that's been in here a little bit where we're getting into today. Let's open with a word of prayer, and we'll read the text. Lord, thank you for everyone here. Help us to study your word diligently. God, make us fruitful for you and your kingdom. God, thank you so much for the salvation that you provided for us and given to us through Jesus Christ, the perfect one, the righteous one, the holy one, through whom everything flows from and back to. Everything is from you. Everything goes back to you. Help us to understand that and to love you and cherish you above all things. God, help us to put aside sin more and more. Help us to continue in our repentance 
Help us to continue and grow our belief in understanding more of what you've said in your word to us. God, help us to realize that heaven is our home and that we should live as aliens here on this earth, that we should lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven, and that there will be loss of reward if we live sinfully, rebelliously here and now, that there is consequence for believers who, who do not live as though this, the next world is everything to them, that there are consequences. Not eternal torment, not punishment, Lord, but the loss of reward and of position in heaven. Lord, help us to take it seriously to live as a Christian, to be warned and exhorted from your truth that these things are true, and that we should take life seriously living for Jesus Christ. That way we should orient our mind and our living and our actions to give you more glory and to wait expectantly for you. For John says that all of us who wait for Jesus Christ are to purify themselves as he is pure. For when we see you, you will be pure and you will make us blameless. So help us work toward that purity and that holiness. Work in us that desire for doing what is right and good during our time here on earth. Amen. <clears throat> okay, let's read Romans 11, 11 through 12. I say then, they did not stumble as to fall. Did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them jealous. Now, if their transgression, Israelites, is riches for the world, riches meaning salvation, and the world meaning the rest of humanity outside of Israel, and there Israelites' failure is riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their fulfillment be? Matt, I expect you to teach your wife everything I say here today, okay? <laughs> she can watch it on video, but this is especially for her. And last, this whole, this whole um, section is for, should bring hope to Jewish people that live today that God's plan is not done and finished with saving more Jewish people in the future. How much more will their fulfillment be? Futuristic language. The tense looks to the, to the future hope. Okay, so they, I, I hope you can see this here, they, their, them, their, their. The red is Israelites. Uh, the blue is, means the rest of the world. <clears throat> Gentiles, world, Gentiles. Last week, <clears throat> uh, it, I won't go into that right now. We'll do it that later. <clears throat> I, so I say then, they, the Israelites, did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. So in Paul's mind, what... We're going to discover what this falling means. What does it mean to fall? May it never be. There, there is not, I believe, a final falling or a final stumbling. It's not finished. It's not over. Their fulfillment is not yet full. It's not yet complete. May it never be. So their, their failure, their transgression, and their failure does not result in a permanent falling away from God's salvific purposes or grace that he's going to show to Israelites in the future. 
Does that make sense? Does anybody have trouble seeing that? You don't have to raise your hand. But I, I, I hope you don't. I hope that you don't have trouble seeing that. So why? Why was it necessary that Israel stumble, transgress, and fail? We're going to, perhaps it would be good if we actually just read the rest of this passage and we'll launch back into this. This will help explain the rest of it. Picking up at the end of verse 13 in Romans 11. But I am speaking to you who are Gentiles, inasmuch then as I am an apostle of the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if somehow I might move them to jealously, jealousy, my fellow countrymen, Israelites, and save some of them. Still the remnant. The remnant will always be saved through time. Verse 15. For if there, Israelites' rejection is reconciliation of the world, meaning salvation, going out to many peoples in the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Still awaiting a future acceptance. Paul's forecasting a future acceptance of salvation. Verse 16, if the first piece of dough is holy, the lump is also, and if the root is holy, the branches are too. But if some of the branches, some of the Israelites, were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, a wild olive, were grafted in among them and became partaker with them of the rich root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. So Gentiles are not to be arrogant toward unbelieving Jews. But if you are arrogant... Remember this, Paul says, it's not you who supports the root, but the root supports you. And I believe the root is Jesus Christ himself, who is the king of Israel and the king of the world. And he supports all the other Israelite branches that are part of the natural olive tree. So you, Gentiles, will in verse 19, you will say to me then, branches, Israelite branches, were broken off so that I might be grafted in? Quite right. Quite right. That's exactly the way it works. That's exactly the way salvation works. They were broken off for their unbelief, but you stand by your faith. Do not be conceited, but fear, for if God did not spare the natural branches, Israelites, he will not spare you, Gentiles, either. Meaning, not, not individual, this is talking large groups. He will not spare you either, meaning he does not have to continue his salvific plan going out to Gentiles. He can cut that off at any time and go back and save Israelites. Do not be arrogant thinking that only Gentiles get to be saved now. At any time, God can cut Gentiles off, end the time of the Gentiles, and go back and save Israelites. God has that right. He can stop saving whatever group he wants and go back and start saving another group. Behold then the kindness and the severity of God to those who fell severity, but to you God's kindness, if you continue in his kindness, meaning if God continues in his gracious kindness toward the Gentiles, otherwise you also will be cut off. God if, if Gentiles become arrogant, God can stop saving Gentile people groups. He can do whatever he wants, people in their sin. He can stop saving people and go and move on. And they also, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in, here's a key word, again. 
Paul has a grafting in again very much in his mind. A future acceptance, a future fulfillment. Once again, salvation in great numbers going to the Israelite people. For if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and were grafted in contrary to nature, but God has the power to overcome that nature and bring you into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these who are the natural Israelites be grafted into their own olive tree? For I don't want you, brethren, Gentiles in Rome, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. So what was not so clear before is now clearly revealed. It's no longer a mystery. And I don't want you to be wise or arrogant. A partial hardening by God has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, all Israel will be saved, just as it is written, the Deliverer will come from Zion, he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. So at any point in time, God can be gracious to people, take away their sins, and pour out upon them a spirit of grace. Just as it says in Zechariah 12.10. I will, God says this in Zechariah 12.10. I put it here on the board as well. I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him. Notice the two things that God poured out on them, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So not only is there a spirit of grace, there is a spirit that is given to them in which they actually repent, because repentance is a gift from God. Pleading for mercy comes from God. If you plead for mercy, the text says it comes from God. The text says it comes from God in the Old Testament. John uses this verse in his gospel, John 19, 37. They will look on him who they have pierced. And in Revelation, the same language is used. The last book of the Bible. Behold, Jesus, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. So, at, so it is to be. Amen. By the transgression of the Israelite people, God, by their hardening, as is coming in 11, salvation has come to the Gentiles. And just before this, God also talked about hardening. He's chosen to be gracious to some, the remnant, and he has hardened the rest so that by their unbelief, their transgression, and their failure, salvation gets to be poured out to the Gentiles. Was this always God's plan? Yes. Does anybody remember a guy named Abraham? What was God's promise to Abraham? You will be a father of many. Well, the Israelites, a majority, didn't want that to happen, actually. Most of them, the majority, not all, during the time of Christ and during their history in the Bible, were not very kind to Gentile peoples. They were not trying to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to dwell in Israel. You do see a little bit of this with Solomon's reign. 
Solomon gives out the wisdom of the law to lots of people who are coming and wanting to hear from Solomon. The Queen of Sheba is one of them. You see some of these partial fulfillments occasionally, but in general, most of the time, Israel goes into sin, and this is an example for us to show that it doesn't matter if God shows the Irish people, the English people, the Russian people, it would result in the same exact thing. They would fail time and time again. God has to send somebody who can do everything. That's Jesus. But God had a plan. This is always God's plan. And salvation to come to the Gentiles, to the world. Abraham is to be a father of many nations out of the world. God is temporarily doing this to make them jealous as well. And Paul uses jealousy further down in the text of 11, Romans 11. Now, if their transgression did result, there is riches for the world, meaning salvation, and their failure, their unbelief, their transgression, and the rejection of the Messiah when he came is riches for these Gentiles, the world. How much more will their fulfillment be? And right here, I believe the language is impossible to think that there's not a future salvation for more Israelites. That there is something going to be greater than the remnant that Paul's already talked about in Romans 10 and 11, specifically 11. That the remnant is a small portion, and specifically Paul quotes from that passage back in 1 Kings about Elijah, how God says, I've kept for myself 7,000 men of Israel who've not bowed their knee to Baal. That's the remnant. It's small numbers. But God, I believe, is going to pour out a large blessing. If you're a literalist, Revelation 7, 1 through 8 talks about 144,000, 12,000 men from each tribe of the Israelites being saved and being God's missionaries on the earth during the end times. That's a lot bigger than 7,000. That's huge. I would say most people can't even, it would take you a lifetime just to count them probably. That's a lot bigger than Pierre, Fort Pierre. Mm -hmm. That's most, or that's a, that's a large portion of the state of South Dakota, that many numbers. But we like being small and populous, right? Yeah. yeah, okay. Okay, so how much more will their fulfillment be? I, I didn't have this plan today, but it was addressed last week, and then my eyes just caught it that the word world is actually used in today's passage. So I thought it was, it was good to talk a little bit about through some of these texts that John... How many of you know that John is the apostle that uses the word world the most? He uses the word world. The Bible, the Bible uses the term world, cosmos, and I think there's one other word for it. But it's primarily John who uses this word in the Bible. He uses it, I think, 80 or 90 times in John, but 20 or 30 times in 1 John through 3 John, and it's used... I think two times in Revelation, maybe three. So of the 135 times, John uses it the most. He uses it in a number of different ways. One scholar believes that contextually he uses it to mean nine different things. Uh, the three main categories, there's actually three main categories the way he uses it. But I believe the way, the, the first way in which it means in John 1 ties in with how Paul is using it here. There's not an inconsistency in Paul's mind or the Apostle John's. When God loves the world, he's pouring out riches for the world. It does not mean every single individual who's alive or who will be alive or who has ever been alive. Um, and we will, let's go to John 1, please. 
I have the verses here on the board. Will be in John 1, 9 through 13, John 3, John 6, and John 17. John introduces the word world right here in the beginning of John. He uses it a couple different ways throughout the letter. But I think it's important for us to study all scripture. How many people understand that scripture does not contradict scripture? That's the first standard in your hermeneutic. That what the Bible says over here does not contradict what the Bible says over here. That they harmonize in some way and we have to find that harmony. Does everybody understand that? Mm -hmm. Okay. So if we don't understand one passage and how it gets over here, we need to find help to help us harmonize the two. Yes? Mm -hmm. Scripture doesn't contradict Scripture. So a lot of times in this passage, in these passages in Romans 9 through 11, a lot of people struggle with the idea of John 3.16, and we'll get there. Uh, that for God so loved the whole world that in the King James Version, whosoever will believe in him will not perish but have eternal life. And so we'll deal with that, that term, whosoever will. The word will doesn't exist there, actually. It can kind of be implied if you want it to mean that. The word will doesn't actually exist there. And whosoever, it can also be interpreted actually most literally as, for God so loved the world, everyone or every person believing in him would not perish. Slightly different than whosoever will, would you say in your mind? Mm -hmm. Every person believing in him would not perish. And so not believes, but believing in him is also the grammatical correct way. In English, we like to correct the grammar sometimes in Greek, but we're still trying for this, the right idea. Most scholars are. Okay, so John 1. Sorry, I delayed. There, there was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. So right there, stop. What does it mean that Jesus came into the world and enlightens every man? Specifically, I want you to wrestle with the question of enlightening. What does God mean when he says when Jesus came into the world, he enlightens every man? What does that enlightenment entail? Is it all-inclusive? What kind of an enlightening is this? Okay? Is everybody following that? Okay? Verse 10. He, Jesus, was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. Whoa, wait a second. Enlightening and no knowledge. Those are contradictions. So this enlightening cannot mean absolute knowledge of God when Jesus came into the world to enlighten every man it is not a total enlightenment it is not a full and a complete salvific enlightenment as some would maybe want to believe verse 10 says the world did not know him but he came into the world to enlighten every man but it says the world did not know him verse 11 he came to his own Israelites his own people and those who were his own did not receive him well Israelites are in the world too but they did not receive him. So how can Jesus come into the world to enlighten every man, but Israelites not accept this? This enlightening is not all-inclusive enlightening. But there is a, a sense in which, if you understand the passage, in a God's sovereignty and mega-God that he is, through Jesus Christ, all kinds of light, and grace and knowledge and information still comes to people who don't believe in him. Engineers still discover wonderful things for us to enjoy in this world. 
Everybody, it says by Paul in Acts 17, is blessed with God's kindness and is filled with their bellies. And is filled, he, God also, it says, fills unbelieving people's heart with merriment and laughter in the Bible. That's a kind grace. God is enlightening people even when they're sinful and his rebellious enemies. But not everybody is being saved. Not everything results in a salvific relationship with God. But as many as received him, verse 12, to them he, Jesus, gave the right to become the children of God. And so there are people who receive Jesus, and then you could maybe logically say, well, the next thing John says is that he gave them the right because they received Jesus, so he gave them the right to become the children of God. So people will say, belief happens first, and then Jesus gives you the right to enter the kingdom of heaven and to be saved by God, to become the children of God even to those who believe in his name. But verse 13 then says actually how this happens, how this reception and how this belief and how they become the children of God happens. Who were born. So the people who receive God, the people who are given the right to become the children of God, and those who believe in his name are those who were born not of blood. So that means nor of the, or of the will of the flesh. Okay, so... They're not born of human. You didn't born yourself. Your blood, human blood does not do this. Human blood cannot do this, what is happening here, this salvation. The will of the flesh, the term will is used here. It is not the will of man that accomplishes this, but this birth is of God. Those who receive Jesus, those who are given the right to become him, his children, and be called the children of God, are those who are born of the will of God. Born of God. Turn with me to John 3. Verse 1, we'll start. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews, and this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you've come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. So Nicodemus comes to him acknowledging that Jesus is a prophet, but he comes to him secretly because he's a part of the Sanhedrin, and he's worried about losing face with all the teachers that already hate Jesus. But he's like, man, this guy might be right. Nobody's got this kind of power unless he's from God. So G Nicodemus, as a teacher, is recognizing that Jesus has authority. And so he's like, i got to come figure out what this guy is about. So I'm going to come for some more teaching at night here. Find out who he is. Because just before this, in John 2, Jesus already came and scourged the temple. Right? Happened right before this. So Nicodemus got perked up. This guy would have been at the temple, and Jesus came and scourged all the guys in the temple. Ran everybody out. Then Nicodemus, with his tail between his legs, is like, all right. I'm going to come find out who this Jesus guy is. Okay, this just happened. This is one of the temple cleansing that Jesus did. This is a very ferocious Jesus most people don't talk about in the Bible anymore. Jesus ran religious people out of a temple and was very angry for people being wrong about religious things. He was not happy. This is not a happy Jesus. But now he's going to be very gracious and talk to this guy. Many, many dynamics of Jesus Christ into God. He's not any just one way. 
So, no one can do the works that you do, Jesus, unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, he doesn't answer what he says. He says he just, Jesus just changes the direction of the conversation here. He gets right to where, where he wants to go with this guy. Truly, Nicodemus, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. So, this guy just wants to talk about what Jesus is about, and then Jesus gets right to it. He doesn't fool around. He doesn't, he's just like, you're a teacher, I know who you are, I know everything about you, here we go. You're not even asking me this question, but I'm going to get right to the center of your theology. I'm going to smash your front door in. Because the religious leaders at this time had built up a works, righteousness, salvation system. And Jesus is here to confront that totally. Israelites' theology had gotten totally astray from salvation by grace through faith. And Jesus goes right into that. That you cannot be saved by your will or your works or your efforts in any way. Truly I tell you, Nicodemus, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Well, Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Okay, Nicodemus is old. He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? Now, Nicodemus was also a master teacher, and some guys, some scholars believe that Nicodemus was pushing back on Jesus' imagery here. I'm an old man, and I'm set in my religious ways, is what he's saying. How can I possibly change everything I've built my life upon my entire religious system. How can you ask me to throw that all away? I do not know what this means to be born of God again. And so Jesus is going to jog his memory here with the next verse. Truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit. And so those two terms only happen in one place. Ezekiel 36 and 37. This guy would have had most of the Old Testament memorized. So Jesus is taking him. He uses this language in John 3 to jog Nicodemus' memory of what's talked about in the prophets. So he talks about how being born again means being born of the water and the spirit. He cannot enter into the kingdom of God unless this happens, unless you're born of water and the spirit. Is the Holy Spirit human? He's saying you can't, it's not of the human. This born-againness does not originate from the human. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. What, what is everyone in here? Flesh. If you're flesh, you're flesh. You can't produce spiritual good because you're sinful. You've transgressed God. You have to have something happen to you from God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. To become spiritual, you have to be born of the spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. Look to the scriptures, Nicodemus. Remember, God said this to you guys a long time ago, that this is the way it has to happen. Water in the spirit. And then Jesus talks about what that kind of looks like. He uses an illustration in verse 8. The wind blows wherever it wishes. The wind represents the Holy Spirit. And you, wherever it wishes, or wherever it wills is the term. And you hear the sound of it, 
but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. And Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? My religious system knows nothing of this doctrine. I'm totally wrong. Everything I've built my life upon is wrong. All my religious teaching, everything that I think about God is being laid bare because of this central truth, this foundational truth, that salvation comes from the Spirit of God, and it does not originate with man working himself up a stairway to heaven somehow. It's God coming to you, changing you, and lifting you up the whole way. Jesus said to him, Are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? It's in the scriptures. Mm -hmm. Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know, we testify of what we've seen. You do not accept our testimony. If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? So there's a lot deeper things that I could talk to you about, Nicodemus, but you just can't receive them yet. You're not able. <clears throat> You're still of the flesh. No one has ascended into heaven, but he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up so that everyone who believes in him will in him have eternal life. Whoever believes will in him have eternal life. Okay, so he, he shows Nicodemus that just as Moses, the people of Israel were sinning and God was killing them with serpents for their sinfulness and their rebellion. So humankind has venom and sin flowing in their veins that they need healing from. And Moses is commanded by God to erect this pole with the bronze serpent on it. And whoever looks at that believes that God will save them and stop this bite and this poisonous consequence for sin, which is being killed by a snake. If I get bit and I look at the pole, I'll be healed. And that's Jesus Christ. You have sin in your life, and it's going to kill you. But if you go to Jesus Christ, you will be saved. He should have expected that. He should have understood that, the teacher of Israel, that one was coming in whom to believe in, and through that way alone was salvation. Not through personal works, not through effort, not through my piety, but through somebody outside of me. Jesus Christ. Whoever believes in him will have eternal life. Jesus presents the gospel to Nicodemus. I am the son of man. You believe in me, you will be saved. And Nicodemus wasn't getting it here yet. He does by the end of John. It's amazing what he gives to Jesus at the end of John. Verse 16, so in this context, Jesus is most quoted, maybe the most quoted Bible verse that everybody knows about. It has a context, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Another thing that Jesus is teaching the teacher of Israel is that salvation is not just for Israelites. It's for the world. My salvation in me, I'm being raised up to be an object to be believed in so that salvation goes to humanity in general. So it's not just for you guys. I believe John 3.16 is showing Nicodemus also that salvation is for the world, not for you guys only. And it, it explains that this is God's love. He shows a love for the world. 
by saving men from their sin. Nobody deserves to have God send Jesus down and be an object of belief to be saved. Everybody's got that sin problem. Everybody deserves to be bitten by a snake and be killed. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world the first time. Judgment's coming later. But the world might be saved through him. So the world, the world. Salvation's going to the world. He who believes in him is not judged. Nicodemus, it's not about works. It's about belief, faith. It's that simple. And that comes from the Spirit of God. It doesn't come from flesh. Jesus is presenting this guy the gospel, and he still won't believe. But Jesus is about to talk to an adulterous woman in the next chapter, and she believes. She's a Samaritan. She's actually, and I believe this is the... Salvation is going to Israel, Samaria, Judea, and the, and the uttermost parts of the world, says in the scriptures. What's amazing is John weaves this, I believe. He's weaving this, that Nicodemus, a leader, is not believing at this point, and then the next person who believes in his story is a half-breed Samaritan woman who the Israelites looked down on and did not like. And not just that, she was a great sinner. She had five husbands. She was a woman who kept sleeping with the next man. Or we've got problems. I'm moving on to the next guy. She gets saved. This guy isn't right yet. So that's what's coming up next in the story. So I hope we're framing this between John 1 and John 4. But this is the judgment, verse 19, that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So going back to John 1, 9, I thought Jesus came into the world to enlighten every man. Right? Is he enlightening every man to the degree of salvation? No. He's not enlightening everyone to the degree of salvation. Though he has been gracious and kind and filled people with food, gladness, and merriment of heart. And many good things that does come through Jesus because Jesus is God and you are his creation and he is still kind to his creation for a time it's much more than any of us deserve common grace but men love the, their darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil everyone who does evil hates the light does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but he who practices the truth and comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Going back to Nicodemus, those who believe, those who look at the Son, are those who are born of the Spirit. And the Spirit has gone wherever he wishes to breathe upon whomever he wishes. Life. Read Ezekiel 37. Dead people don't come to life on their own. God does that. God does that. Only God can give people spiritual life that they never possessed before. John 6. Man, I'm running out of time. This stuff's good, though. <laughs> Verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. So we're coming to Jesus. We're believing in Jesus. Verse 36. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. So people are seeing Jesus, but they're not believing. Why? Verse 37. Because all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. 
This is the will of him who sent me. Jesus is going to say this. What is God's will? That of all that he has given, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father has given to me, I lose nothing. So is the Father and the Son losing anyone in their salvific plan? Nobody is being lost. Everyone the Father gives to the Son that's in the Father's plan comes to the Son. And it's the Son's good purpose. Like, you give them to me, they believe in me, I give them eternal life through my resurrection. Verse 44. Verse 43. Some of the Jews were grumbling about this teaching. Jesus answered, said to them, Don't grumble among yourselves. You can't listen to my teaching because, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. Skipped over to uh, verses 63. It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. Human beings can do nothing with regard to salvation. Being justified. Entering heaven is a gift of God. Faith is a gift. Repentance is a gift. <clears throat> the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and are life, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Speaking of Judas, 65. And he was saying to them, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it's been granted to him from the Father. John 17, real quick, and we'll dismiss. God loves the world. He comes and saves people out from the world. He loves humanity in a general way, and he loves humanity in a salvific way. God has shown love to all of humanity if he saves one sinner from hell. Do you know that? God has shown love to the world if he saves one of us. And we should all worship God in hell, saying, praise be to God, he saved one of us. That's what our theological thought should be. If the rest of us were condemned to hell, we should say, praise be to God, he loved us so much, he saved one out from among us. He saved one of our brothers and sisters that were in sin, that were in the same boat as us. God was gracious. All of us deserve eternal punishment, and God showed love to our, our kind he saved some of us. John 17. Jesus says this. Jesus is doing a high priestly prayer right now. And in <clears throat> verse 9 it says this. He's talking to God. I ask on their behalf, talking about his disciples. I do not ask on behalf of the world. Jesus does not pray for the entire world. But of those whom you have given to me from the world. For they are yours. And in verse 20, so it does not include just the Gentiles. I do not ask on behalf of these alone, his disciples that are going to proclaim his word, but for all those who believe in me through their word. So the apostles, Jesus prays for. And for everyone who is going to believe in Jesus through the scriptures that they've handed down to us today. That's who Jesus prays for. And that does not contradict John 3.16. He gives an explanation of John 3.16. It's, I pray for those whom you have given to me, for they are yours. That's who your love and my salvific love is for. Lord, thank you for this time. I pray that everyone in here will be blessed. Lord, help us to bear fruit for Jesus. 
to be glad and excited for the salvation that you've so freely given to us such sinful creatures. Thank you for transforming our hearts, freeing us from being slaves of sin and making us slaves of righteousness, as Paul has said in Romans 6. We're making us slaves of God now. So Lord, help us to understand and to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to do that which is good, pleasing, and perfect in your sight. God, make us more holy. Help us to encourage each other to love and good deeds. Help us to grow as a church body in unity and in grace. And help us to be holy and look forward to heaven always. Amen. Yeah, well, they're coming on Thursday. We saw them last weekend, and they're coming on Thursday. I'm not sure how long